Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on January 23rd, 2019. I am your host, Oliver Hotham, filling in for Jacko's vet salute, who is taking some time to recover from an illness. We and all our listeners, I'm sure, wish him a speedy recovery. Get better soon, Jacko. Joining me today in the studio from NK News are NK News boss man Chad O'Carroll. Hello, good morning. NK News reporters Collins Verko. Morning. And Dagam G. And you are here. And we'll be reviewing all the recent developments on the peninsula and beyond in the past few weeks. <laughs> Once again, NK News is offering a free year subscription to one lucky reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership may grow. So it's been a busy month. First question for Chad. You've just returned from a trip to Washington, D.C., as have a lot of uh, NKNU staff members, including myself, where you had many meetings with prominent people working on the North Korean issue. What were your impressions of the mood there? Um, overall, I'd say the main impression I got left with was a feeling that there is a possibility that we could be in a situation next year where Washington, uh, well, President Trump may be happy with uh, the US DPRK diplomacy, even if nothing has really yielded from it, on condition that there is a situation where no further missile tests have taken place, no nuclear test has taken place, with the result being that in his election year 2020, Trump may uh, look to his electorate um, and look to his potential constituents and say, you know, this is the one area of success I've had. Um, it's been 2.5 years, no testing. Uh, he's already said it's a success and therefore use that to build on a rationale to bring back troops from South Korea. Now, this might only be a, a small number. I think there are some legal restrictions on him not being able to bring back more than probably about 10,000 right now. Um, but the, this this was a sort of sense I picked up from a, a number of conversations in uh, Washington and New York with people working on North Korea stuff. The other thing was that those working on the issue in government I spoke to didn't seem greatly optimistic about the prospect for real denuclearization anytime soon. And what I found interesting was that while there are signs that the US may be open to humanitarian further humanitarian exemptions and softening of uh, sanctions in that particular area uh, I got the sense that um, North Korea may not be uh, willing to look at that as uh, something of a concession to to push the ball forward so what does that mean then in the context of Kim Jong-un talking in his new speech about this new path that the country would take if sanctions uh, relief uh, isn't forthcoming. Surely that means that in the case, as you laid out, where not not much progress takes place, isn't North Korea then in the position where it's not actually gained any, as it sees, reciprocal measures and it perhaps withdraws from diplomacy? Uh, I don't think it's going to... It it could withdraw from US diplomacy, but I don't think it's going to go... It would not make sense for it to go back to missile and and nuclear testing because that would just rock the boat too much right now it looks like north korea is really in an increasingly good position for basically pointing the finger at the at the us if and when talks collapse 
to say that it was Washington's fault, Washington's lack of patience, its lack of effort towards trust building as per the first uh, pillar of the, the Singapore uh, agreement. And so while they might move towards greater ties with China or uh, if they can convince South Korea to take a more unilateral approach, the ROK as well, um, I don't think they're going to return to the, the testing that a lot of people uh, feared might happen last year. Well, in contrast to that slightly skeptical take, um, if you've been listening to the statements coming out of the White House and the State Department over the weekend, everything is going swimmingly ahead of this planned second summit. Over the weekend, we saw high-level meetings in both Washington, D.C., and Stockholm um, between North Korean officials uh, Kim Jong-chol and the president, as well as between Che Sun-hee and uh, the U.S. official Steve Began, including the delivery of another letter to President Trump from Kim Jong-un. Colin, you've written a little bit about this sort of strange man-to-man uh, letter writing the diplomacy. Um, what do you what do you make of this new letter? Do you think um, it can move the ball forward? Um, and and what, how do you think it sets expectations before the second summit? Well, we saw some pictures again. It was uh, Kim Young Chol in the in the Oval Office with a very large letter again, just like last summer. And uh, they've been going back and forth with these letters. Uh, sometimes Trump talks about them like he's getting them multiple times per week, so it's kind of hard to keep track. Uh, but They've been well publicized recently. And uh, I think I saw an image someone had of uh, of Began and Trump in the Oval Office recently. And they had the letters out there on the desk. It looked kind of short. Uh, I think it was Ankit Panda who took a screenshot of it and kind of flipped it around. And uh, I think they're just uh, laying the plans for the summit. And uh, that's where they that's where the two sides see things as potentially getting done, um, although we have this working level talks too. So uh, we really don't know if the working level talks are mostly about the summit or if they're also talking about potential concessions that are going to come out of some agreement. Um, I think even though Washington make announcement that um, the second DPRK US summit will take place in the end of February, um, but I want to point out that um, since Pyongyang and Washington had agreed to establish a working group back in July when Pompeo visited Pyongyang, um, there has been no progress in the formation. Um, so even though there will be second DPRK US summit in late February, I think both still focused on top-down approach. And I'm not sure, um, I'm skeptical about how this approach will really work because um, in terms of denuclearization, we still need someone who can deal with the issues in terms of like technical and other stuff. So I think it's time to more focus on working level talks. But th- that being said, the one thing that was really interesting about... Um, uh, the trip we had to DC and the, the photos that came out. One of the things I heard about the the visit of Kim Jong Chol was that it was contingent on um, Began being able to meet uh, Che Son Hee, and he did that one just one day after the Washington trip. And as you as you saw on the photos that uh, were published from the White House, when Pompeo and uh, Donald Trump were with uh, the North Koreans in the Oval Office, Began was also there. And there were also four other North Korean officials um, who uh, I named. I can't remember them all now. 
uh, on Twitter, but that it really was indi- an indication that this was an effort by the US to have this high-level talk with Kim Jong-chol, but also to really cement the working level and kick that off in some meaningful way. And it looks like that's been successful. Yeah, and this was the first time we've seen this kind of two-track diplomacy, right? Seeing President Trump meeting with high-level North Korean officials and at the same time these more nitty-gritty meetings going on in Stockholm. I mean, Dagan, what do you make of these of this two-track approach? As you said, this group was set up last year. It only seems to be now that they're actually working as they're supposed to be working, right? Um, I'm not sure the working level group me- group means the meeting of high level officials. I'm pretty sure that when we said working group meeting, that includes like expert or technicians that can actually deal with the new denuclearization issues uh, from the stretch. So I think I don't I don't think we can call the meeting as working level talks mm-hmm. at this point and but it's um it's clear that um there has been like two track approach between the washington and pyongyang and when we look back to the like first dprk us summit there has been a lot of like meetings in panmunjom but that's only one track and not two tracks so i think it's quite notable development and i think this is the sign of like urgency it shows the urgency that they both feel that we have to deal with the issues as soon as possible within the top of the Trump President Trump. Yeah, and on the, the Swedish thing, uh, the Stockholm meeting, it is important to point out that this is a uh, an annual event, um, but it seemed to have taken on a lot of meaningfulness this year when Chae Sun-hee decided to go at the 11th hour. Last year, Han Song-ryol, a former North Korean ambassador to the UN, uh, I believe was the main DPRK participant at this uh, and it, it didn't really lead to any yeah. big headlines or, or major progress but give the, the 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 personnel that were deployed by both sides to this I think gave it a lot more uh, value in terms of US DPRK diplomacy but as Dagim says it's not actually uh, that official I don't think it's an, an, an articulation of that official working group concept so then if if we're in agreement then that sanctions and denuclearization and these more tricky topics weren't discussed in Stockholm. I mean, maybe they were. Um, what what do we think was being discussed? So according to Swedish government announcement, three topics were discussed. First one is confidence building and economic development and long-term engagement, which is the issues should be dealt with like long-term perspective in a way. And I believe um, considering the announcement that um, three topics were discussed. I think the peace, a uh, peace treaty or peace agreement, could be one of the agenda at the topic because, like, confidence building and long-term engagement, clearly suggests that they discuss kind of peace mm-hmm. agreement at the talks. Do we think that any military drills would have been part of uh, initial discussions or lead-up discussions coming up to the summit? I mean, confidence building clearly suggests that, I mean, if you, if the two countries want to build confidence, the, the eradication of military hostilities should be preceded. So I think it should be discussed in yeah, a I way. Think, yeah. Like and last the, time it wasn't in the agreement, but this time I think Trump will. And on that note, then where do we stand? We saw North Korean media uh, last week hitting out at American and South Korean plans to hold joint military drills in the coming months. Uh, What's the current status of those drills, Colin? Well, we've got uh, 
as far as I know, we've got Key Resolve, uh, a scaled down version from many years ago. It used to be, you know, com- computerized simulations on one hand, and then jo- uh, they had uh, drills out in the field, joint uh, between the U.S. and South Korea. Um, this year, it's. I mean, they're basically saying that nothing has. They they they're basically saying that it hasn't been canceled, so it's. They're carrying out plans for it as they should. Until it's canceled,、um, the South Korean Defense Minister said they would make announcement on the suspension or just going off joint military drills by the end of this year at least. And but there has been、end、no progress last, last year, yeah,、mm. December. Yeah,、um, so it's it's probably gonna、uh, it's gonna be dependent upon、uh, talks leading up to the summit. Even though if the summit occurs. In late February, then the drills are scheduled to start in early March, and we'll just have to see how that all plays out. But it's totally normal for North Korean media to be spouting off about how they wish them to end. And on the topic of that second summit, it now seems fairly clear to all commentators that the location will be Vietnam. I think either Da Nang or Hanoi have been floated.、Um, What do we make of that choice? Do we see Vietnam as potentially a model for North Korea,、um, or is it just a convenient、um, location, sort of a country that has good relations with the U.S. but also has a historic relationship with Pyongyang? Chad, what do we think? Yeah, probably both.、Um, it's you know it's in a country where the、uh, population are unlikely to be protesting against Kim Kim Jong Un's presence, which is important from the aesthetic perspective for North Korea. Uh, we just had a North Korean foreign ministry visit to Vietnam in December, so you know I think that suggests that there's going to be and and in that visit there was talk of Vietnam's economic model. So yeah, it has、uh, two sets of benefits、uh, for the U.S. It's、um, you know there's been some question as to whether Da Nang is is、uh, historically a good. Shout for the U.S. because it's of its site of a historic U.S. defeat during the Vietnam War. <laughs>、um, yes, yeah. North Koreans might like that, though. <laughs> exactly. So、um, you know, Danang as well. What one thing about Danang is that it would imply that if the North Koreans go to Hanoi first for a, a bilateral meeting with the Vietnamese leadership, then you know it's it's just a, another travel vector away. So it adds. A bit more of a security hassle for the North Koreans. So I, I don't know. I'm still not utterly convinced it will be in Danang, but you know we'll see. And Dagan, what do you make of this idea of Doimoi with DPRK characteristics? Then this idea that North Korea, as was discussed、uh, last year during Ri Yonghoe's visit, North Korea could pose some kind of、um, development model for North Korea, retaining that one-party state system while also having some degree of economic liberalisation. Um, actually, I researched the Vietnamese model and whether it can actually apply to the North Korean reform in the future. But the thing is, even though Vietnam and Korea share a similar history, like division of the peninsula and division of the country, but economic structure was quite different. Um, so one part of the Vietnam was rather focused on. Agriculture and the other is was focused on industrial、um, development, but I don't think any um similarity um in terms of industrial structures, bet- between Vietnam and North Korea. So I think 
North Korea may benchmark the Vietnamese model, but I don't think they can actually um, adopt the model to the current situations because of the difference of the industry structure. But I think it's one of the good models, including China, Romania. Yeah. So what you're saying is then that North Korea is perhaps too heavily industrialized compared to Vietnam prior to Doi Moi? Not really. Um, so at that time, there was like clear gap and they can use the advantage of like agriculture society back in like 1960s but there has been huge gap between Pyongyang and other cities so I don't think um, North Korea can actually um, gain benefit from the agriculture society so I don't think yeah I mean maybe they can use it but I don't think that's ideal model or it could be yeah in some way hedge your bets (laughs) (laughs) and um, this week we've also seen news then that Humanitarian aid to North Korea is going to be made easier. This follows um, comments by Began in Seoul last year, um, following a year of uh, reporting by NK News and other outlets, which revealed that sanctions were placing huge restrictions on what aid organizations were able to do. Um, The US is now saying that this will be made easier. We saw four exemptions related to humanitarian aid from the UN Security Council just this week. Um, Chad, does this represent some kind of softening of sanctions or some kind of concession to North Korea? Or was this just a long overdue kind of administrative corrective? I think the problem is that some in the US think it this is a concession. And it does come after a month where the US has been a, a lot more restrained in terms of building uh, or maintaining the maximum pressure policy. We've seen no new designations from Treasury. The State Department haven't put out any more human rights reports or proclamations. And so it looks like there has been some effort to try and build goodwill. But my sense is, from the North Korean perspective, this is really nothing. There are already carve-outs in every UN Security Council resolution for humanitarian exemptions. Why then is the US being flexible on something that's already committed to do a concession to the North Koreans? Uh, so I have I've concerns that this is not going to be going to really move the ball forward. Um, and the problem is from what I, I heard in DC is that there is not much appetite at working US level for anything more than very, very minor humanitarian exemptions. And so uh, it does raise the question as to what can really be achieved in uh, Vietnam at a second summit. And I think we, we're going to have to see some flexibility from w- one or both sides. And it's just hard to see where that's going to come from right now. I would point out, though, that um, while the North Koreans may not see humanitarian aid as a concession we should recall that in 2012 during the leap day deal food aid was a big part of of what the u.s was offering to north korea for for a moratorium so kim jong-un himself has you know led led the dprk at times in the past where that has been viewed as as currency so you know maybe we can't rule it out if the 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 give uh, potential give is is big enough and do recall that South Korea has, what is it, about $8 million that they yeah. wanted to put through the UN system. Um, I know the US is still quite opposed to that, uh, but maybe some green lights surrounding that and maybe the US putting in a huge chunk of money into the UN framework in North Korea could also help build build trust at least. 
That being said, there's a there's a view among a lot of I guess I would say more conservative or hardline um, commentators and observers, at least in the US, um, that um, perhaps the next summit might see uh, President Trump so desperate to make progress on this that he offers North Korea some kind of sanctions relief or some kind of lower level um, agreement that will allow for, say, the reopening of Kaesong in South Korea. I mean, how likely do we think that there will be some kind of sanctions relief in 2019? I think it's very likely there'll be sanctions relief, but I, it won't be described as that. <laughs> there'll be an effort to just say maximum pressure is prevailing. But we, I mean, we, we already see in the data the number of sanctions exemptions that they are all kind of microscopic in nature, but they are increasing. Um, and you also see a blind eye being turned by the US to China, which is ma- manifestly breaching huge swathes of the sector level sanctions. And as I've been writing yesterday, South Korea, which uh, has clearly breached sanctions with its uh, investments in the Kaesong Liaison Office, its refurbishment of that using sanctioned materials, its uh, uh, sending export of oil and petroleum without reporting it to the UN every 30 days as per uh, its requirements. You know, I, I think we can expect to see more of, more of that kind of behavior. Uh, and then I guess if the North Koreans are... Vietnam could be persuaded to do some kind of simultaneous exchange of concessions where they just say, we agree to shut down Yongbyon in front of inspectors on condition that, you know, X, Y and Z sanctions lift the same day. Maybe maybe something like that. Well, in September, they said that they would... um shut down Yonbyon in exchange for reciprocal measures right. from the United States. Could those? Could that be the so-called reciprocal measures? Yeah, the, but the phasing has been the, the, the block so far, right? The, the, I think we need to see a bit more clarity on what would come first, and no one wants to play their hand first in this, this engagement. And then on the topic of sanctions and inter-Korean uh, relations, um, the never-ending story of Kaesong and the businessmen that are hoping to visit uh, North Korea said this week that Seoul is dragging its feet on the issue and that it is um, uh, essentially sucking up to a foreign power in, in the hopes that uh, they'll get uh, some kind of sanctions relief to allow it to open. Dagam, how likely is it, do you think, that we'll see these unfortunate Kaesong businessmen finally visit the site? And perhaps how likely do you think it is that we'll see the site reopen by the end of the year? So when we look at the coverage of the PRK media last year, and in 2017, the DPRK media outlet said we wouldn't be, uh, we, we wouldn't permit the visit by KIC businessmen to the factories. But nowadays, um, DPRK media said, oh, we welcome their visit, but South Korean government, um, blocked their visit because of the U.S. And the KIC men, KIC people originally want to visit their factory for inspections on January 16th, but the government didn't allow them to go there. So I think if North Korea is happy with their visit and the U.S. is kind of barrier now, I think it's likely that they can go there, go and check their facility within this year at least. Well, a visit by those businessmen has kind of been seen as something of a canary in the coal mine, right? The idea is, well, if those guys can go, then the South Korean government is more open to opening the complex. Um, And um, 
you know, we've seen talk. The two Koreas already agreed that they were going to reopen the the plant last year um, when conditions when uh, conditions were met. Um, what kind of conditions might those be? Well, we're going to have to see sanctions relief. That that's that's uh, the UN sanctions prevent it from opening, and so it's not going to open until some deal between the U.S. or the U.S. can push for sanctions relief at the UN level. Everything else, no matter how much they want to open it. That seems to be the barrier. Treasury, the Treasury sanctions as well, I think are probably more like, and the executive orders are more of an issue, I would imagine. Uh, the, the UN ones uh, prevent the joint ventures. Um, there may be some creative way to get around that. They, they, and they also prevent the bulk transfer of cash. Um, uh, Josh Stanton actually made a really uh, interesting suggestion on his blog that one way to test North Korea's sincerity would be to allow Kaesong to, to resume operations and pay the workers in kind, like in food, consumer products, and create some kind of mechanism to ensure that they actually get them, but not transfer money. And, you know... In- Wouldn't the problem with that idea be, though, that the, one of the central complaints about Kaesong was that it was essentially funding North Korean slave labor? Josh said it would still be slave labor. I so mean, yeah, if you're paying them in, in food and... You know, if you're paying them in choco pies, it doesn't really. Um, I think it's still an inter- it's still an interesting idea, and uh, I, I'd be curious to see what the North Korean view would would be on it. I imagine they wouldn't like it because it would be a kind of disrespect to their uh, workers. And I don't think um, the two Koreas can resolve the issue by themselves, sadly. And the reason why the U.S. and ROK working group was established is that. The Washington was really unhappy with the Panmunjom um, Pyongyang declarations, which include the resumption of Kaesong industrial complex and mountain Gungang. So my view is the ideal scenario is that the Trump gave concession of um, permitting the resumption of KIC and mountain Gungang as uh, corresponding measures um, in response to Pyongyang's um, occupation. Pyongyang's measures for the denuclearization. I think that's the only uh, scenario that we can imagine as of now, because even though the two Korea really want open KIC, I don't think there's any way that they can do it by themselves. Even though the North Korea said it's our problem because Kaesong was shut down by the Park government, not by the UN sanctions. And Dagam, you know, we, we're talking a lot about Kaesong, and that's usually the um, side of this agreement that gets the most attention, but. What about Kumgang? Um, would there be some space for inter-Korean cooperation there that wouldn't necessarily violate sanctions? Um, it's kind of symbolic from both Korea because we um, began the inter-Korean economic exchanges and that was the starting point and that was the uh, shutdown by the like Imyeongbak government after the gunfire situation. So I think it's rather symbolic that both Korea can um be go back to the past where the exchanges um existed, so I think in terms of the issues, I think that's symbolic. Rather, it's yeah, I don't think it's really beneficial for South Korea. Are there? Are there you could have you could have the North Koreans um if it isn't about cash and it's more about some sort of symbolic inter Korean um cooperation. You could have South Korean tourists getting free bus rides. What about around North, the North Korean tourists going to Sodaksan? Yeah, that would be that would be feasible. I think, of course, Pyongyang would never allow it. Yeah, that's the no, issue. But you know, like, I'd love to see that moon 
offer that publicly to Kim? Because how, like on on what grounds can he say no? He can't admit that there's a huge information problem and, and oh, this could really undermine my legitimacy. And I think that it is really vital that people engaging with North Korea try and do it on a bit more of an equal grounds because if it's just tours in an isolated spot in Kungangsan or Wonsan, if this this works out at the Kalma Peninsula, then it's it's really pretty meaningless as far as people-to-people contact goes. And I also want to raise the issue that um, President Moon has said that mountain Gangang tourism and Kaesong industrial complex were beneficial to both Koreas. And I get it that Kaesong industrial complex was beneficial for South Korean uh, small and medium enterprises, and I understand. But I don't still understand what is the logic that mountain Gangang tourism can actually gain, give benefits for the South Korean company. Um, in terms of the issue, I think the government still needs to explain how it can benefit for the South Korean public, even though there was instant that and one South Korean people person were killed by a North Korean soldier. I think the view with Kumgang was always a more long-term vision, right? It was about getting in there, you know, before everyone else. From inter-Korean engagement to DPRK, Chinese engagement, January saw Kim Jong-un's first summit of the year. He went to China. Colin, what do you think motivated the North Korean leader to kick off his year with a meeting with Xi Jinping? Well, it seems to be it's it's his trip there before the, the summit with Trump. Uh, to coordinate on the roadmap, so to speak, that they've uh, made out with Russia and China and North Korea. And uh, it's it's all just part of those two countries becoming closer and closer. And we see that uh, they're having another art troupe uh, exchange. This time they're going up to Beijing. That's going to happen this week. It, it, also, it was at the behest of, of Xi Jinping, right? He invited Kim Jong-un. And one of the things I remember in reading your analysis of that visit, Oliver, was that you had a line in there about how uh, Xi Jinping had urged, theoretically, Kim Jong-un and Trump to to meet halfway. Mm. And uh, I think you were suggesting that this may have been an effort for from the Chinese to uh, to to get some more open-mindedness from the North Koreans in their position and and you know that the Kim Jong Chol visit happened so soon after does after how many days I think there were almost two months that trip was delayed after Pompeo first raised it last year so you you got to wonder if there was some connection there and and she was doing some minor uh role as, as a kind of catalyst towards the USDPRK track and North Korean media um, reporting that Kim Jong-un had once again invited the Chinese president to visit <laughs> Pyongyang. And that invitation was conspicuously absent from um, Chinese state media coverage. Dagam, how likely do you think a visit by Xi Jinping to Pyongyang is within the year? I mean, I have to point out that Kim Jong-un invited Xi Jinping during his first summit with Xi in last March, March last year, and KCNA made the same report that we invite Xi to visit Pyongyang in March, and she accepted invitation, and it has never happened. But I think um, Xi Jinping's visit to Pyongyang will take place eventually within this year. Um, the thing is, 
my view is that the sequence between Kim's visit to Seoul and she's visit to Pyongyang may um, suggest North Korea's foreign policy this year or Kim's um, maybe suggest like clue about Kim's new way proposed in his new year. So I think if, if Kim Jong-un is willing to visit um, Seoul this year, um, I think Xi Jinping will also visit Pyongyang in this context. And of course, uh, one of the most high-profile moments of the summit in China was Kim Jong-un's visit to a pharmaceutical factory in downtown Beijing um, and subsequent reporting that Kim was interested in uh, China's model of reform and opening up. Colin, what do you think was the purpose of that uh, visit, I think, to what was the factory of some kind of herbal medicine? Yeah, like traditional Chinese medicine. Tongindang. Was the name, yeah. Uh, that... I saw the connection, a lot of people saw the connection between the Pyongyang Pharmaceutical Factory, which has been uh, seeing upgrades this past year. Uh, that is, as our readers might know, that that is, was jointly ran under the Pyongsu uh, joint venture uh, with a foreign corporation. Uh, that joint venture is on hold at the moment. They are currently trying to get an exemption from the UN to resume the joint venture for humanitarian purposes because they're producing medicines. They don't, the the Pyongyang Pharmaceutical Factory doesn't only produce these kinds of traditional medicines like Koryo Ginseng. Uh, They do that sort of thing, but they also produce uh, medicine for like pain medicine and stuff like that. And they distribute throughout Pyongyang. So they are still in operation and upgrading their facilities, but the foreign partner is not currently uh reaping the benefits but they are still uh in partnership yeah yeah they they had a really creative get around to the joint venture ban which is effectively to give all ownership to the north korean side so it was a no no longer a, a jv right. um and i guess they trust that they'll get that back and then know. is that the same factory that appeared in the rodong shinman the next day um yeah where... so the the factory manager was saying You've really inspired us, Kim Jong-un, with your visit to the factory in Beijing, naming it. And uh, so uh, there's speculation that because that sector isn't sanctioned as a, you know, exporting Korea ginseng to, to China, which is very popular among Chinese tourists who go to Pyongyang, uh, you know, they could do that. And so maybe upping their uh, production ability in that sector could be another source of foreign currency or, um, you know, it's just a, a pride sector as well they're very proud of that oh i was telling colin that when chad and i went to myohansan to see the international friendship exhibition there were lines and lines of chinese tourists hoping to buy the the fresh ginseng they're much more interested in the ginseng than in the um, didn't you buy some tiger bones um <laughs> no comment Did you? okay <laughs> i mean the last when... remaining in, in korea when we look at the pyongyang trade fair there is a number of pharmaceutical company and the medicine industry is leading industry in North Korea. So in the context, Kim's visit to the Chinese pharmaceutical company is really significant. January 6th saw news out of South Korea's National Assembly that Jo Song-gil, a uh, diplomat at the, em- at the North Korean embassy in Italy, had defected. His fate, however, remains as yet unknown. Chad, what do we make of this story? And do we think that Joe will visit, uh, will come to South Korea as uh, Tae Yong Ho impl- implored him to? 
Um, well, I found it very interesting that this was leaked first to Jungang Ilbo. Um, and Jungang Ilbo, the, the publication that first revealed Taeyong Ho had uh, defected to South Korea. And that was done in a, a rather improper way in, in terms of the usual protocol surrounding defections. There's not meant to be any publicity surrounding them. The Taeyong Ho one, of course, um, the Park, there are big questions about why the Park Gunhei government publicized it when it did. And so there has also been question marks surrounding why presumably National Intelligence Service sources told Jungang Ilbo about this, um, just uh, as we are in a situation where diplomacy is uh, supposedly flowering and U.S. DPRK summits are on the horizon. Why, why release this information now? Perhaps some discontent on the part of the deep state here in South Korea with Moon Jae-in. <laughs> yes, yeah, that could be could be one one reason. Um, but you know, uh, as we saw, Taeyong Ho and several other um, defectors ha- ha- held a press conference to call on uh, this man to come to South Korea. And uh, you know, we we who knows if if he if he had come, I would imagine the Moon government would be strongly motivated not to reveal that information while trying to get Kim Jong-un to come for a second, uh, a first summit here in Seoul. Uh, but it's also possible, of course, he's gone to other countries such as the US or Switzerland or Germany. Yeah. And what kind of background do we have on this defector? Do we know a little bit about his uh, his past, where he's been working before? He was in the Italy uh, embassy in Rome, working as the deputy ambassador and uh, then last year, whenever the ambassador, there was that whole spat with international situation and uh, the ambassador left. And then he was presumed to be the, the acting ambassador during the last year. But I don't think he would be willing to come to South Korea because back in um, former North Korean diplomat de facto to South Korea that was under the Park government who will who would welcome his um, his defection, but under the Moon government, real in realistic, um, I don't think he could be active like Ted did before. So I don't think it's right time for him to cross the border and to settle in South Korea. I mean, and Andre Lankov wrote a a quite insightful column for us, uh, suggesting that. While Taeyong Ho obviously has become very high profile and um, has become, I guess, as Andrew described, one of the most dangerous uh, defectors from the North Korean government's point of view, he pointed out that a lot of um, diplomat defectors have actually had a much more low-key, I suppose, retirement, so to speak. They've actually gone to the US or to other European countries and actually um, laid quite low. How likely do we think it is that this case might just disappear, that we'll never hear from him again? Yeah, I think it's it's a strong possibility. Um, I imagine that given the way the, the news leaked that the uh, Moon-appointed director of the NIS, Sahoon, might, might have been instructed by Moon's gov- uh, the Blue House to ensure further information is not leaked at such a sensitive time. Uh, so if there's any connection to South Korea, I imagine it will, we might not hear about it for, for some time. Um, and... You know, just in terms of diplomat defectors that have made it to South Korea, uh, our former colleague Soyeon Kim interviewed a gentleman who was formerly at the Vietnam Embassy, um, came to South Korea. 
he didn't last long here. He's he's moved to Europe. Uh, I was very discontent um, about the the situation here, and and I uh, I imagine there are many difficulties if you're not a very very high level like like Mr. Tay, and so uh, it may not be a the most suitable location at this time. It's really sad that the South Korean government really don't know how to use the human resources. I mean, Tae could be really good human resource, but when you read Tae's book and he suggests that the South Korean government didn't provide much help when he first came to South Korea and he was supported by other private organizations. So I believe in the sense, I don't believe the Cho really want to come to South Korea and most of like high profile defector wasn't were very happy with the government support in a way and like Chad mentioned one of the defector diplomat just moved to the Europe because of like dissatisfactions over his life in Seoul. Well I think we'll wrap it up there thank you again to Chad, Colin and Dagam for coming on the NK News podcast and reviewing the latest news about North Korea. Don't forget you can listen to all our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korea research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arius Dare and Christina Lee and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership. So please review us after listening and you might win. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 